Thank you once again for that reading. It was beautifully done and, and good to be back here. Let me just say on behalf of the uh, prayer time, I do encourage you to, uh, if you have a mosque that's near you, uh, where you live, uh, between now and Friday, write them a nice note, express how much we're praying for them. Uh, Muslims feel solidarity around the world with one another, and as they gather on Friday, they'll be feeling vulnerable, and we want to let them know our, our love, and they are, after all, children of Abraham, even though we don't uh, share the gospel, we share that, and that's an important, um, important point. Okay, well, someone tell me, what was the last spoken words of Jesus in his public ministry? It's not a pop quiz. It's okay. Just a reflection. It's actually not found in the Gospels. It's found in the book of Acts. Just before his ascension, the last spoken words of Christ in his public ministry is, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, when I first read that uh, years ago, I assumed that it was kind of a geographic progression. You know, the, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to you know, first break out in Jerusalem and then go out, you know, 30 more miles to Samaria and then eventually go 24,901 miles, which is the circumference of the earth. But if you read the book of Acts um, more carefully, more closely, uh, of course, it's not less than geography, but it's, it's much deeper than geography. It's actually about an ethnic progression of the church's growth. So it's like you should really hear it as Jew, uh, Samaritan, which is a heretical Jew, God-fearer, and eventually Gentile. And this, this is the progression that happens. And there's a section of Acts, which we'll explore more in detail as this series develops, but where essentially from Acts 8.1, where you have the reference to persecution, all the way to Acts 11.19, which returns to persecution, you have the kind of setup uh, of there's four passages to prepare us for the gospel being preached directly to Greek-speaking people with no background in Judaism at all. So the first one is Samaria. The second is the Ethiopian eunuch, which I will actually preach that one here. And then you have the conversion of, uh, of uh, Saul of Tarsus and Cornelius' household. Those, those four texts are all found in this transitional uh, period. Let me point out a few things about this passage. It's really important because this... <clears throat> This passage really comes up in verse 4 with a Corsal as this persecution breaks out and the church is scattered. Now, when you read that in the English, uh, just, you know, those who've been scattered preached through where they went. But the word actually here is the word for diaspora. Diaspora is the Jewish, it's a technical word for the Jewish um, dispersion of people after all of their the exile, right? So the diaspora is a very loaded word for Jews. So when this text tells us that they had been scattered, uh, diaspora is the word, diaspora, where we got diaspora from, this is a real strong signal to a Jewish reader that, oh my goodness, we're now in another period of scattering. Okay, it's a way of saying that the Jewish business, as it were, is unfulfilled. We have unfinished business that God has another plan. It's going to include the world. All of these things are unfolding. It comes up with this, this word, um, diaspora. They're going to have this encounter with the Samaritans. The Samaritans are a strange group because they are regarded by everybody really as Jews, but the Jews themselves 
regarded them as basically heretical Jews. They, they didn't accept Jerusalem. They worshipped Mount Gerizim. They, they had their own kind of liturgies. They had their own uh, kind of practices. And so, therefore, there was, there was a tension between these groups. And so for the gospel to spread first to Samaritans is a big deal. This is the first step, which ultimately leads to uh, the group in Antioch that heard the gospel for the first time. So here they are. They, they, they're, they're preaching the gospel, and uh, this is going to uh, spread out. I, I used to, when I first, for, for years when I would preach on this passage, I used to take time to chastise the apostles. Because I regularly did this in my church over the years. I would say, you know, they, here they are, the persecution breaks out, they're all scattered. Everyone scatters out preaching the word, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So this is a great uh, avenue to criticize the apostles. They were told, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, hear my witness to the ends of the earth, they stay in Jerusalem. So I used to say, the apostles are sitting on their hands in Jerusalem, and this next group is going out. But I've, I've repented for that before the Lord over the years because I realized that when you actually go back to this text and read it carefully, the Jews were, they expected a big ingathering of Jews to receive Jesus as the Messiah. That had been their own experience. So they did not yet know that the Jews would largely reject the Messiah. In fact, in the early pages of Acts, there are thousands that are, in fact, coming to Christ, and including many priests who are coming to the Lord. So they had every reason to believe that they needed to be there in Jerusalem to receive the nations of the world that are being converted and brought to Christ. And so I think in some ways they're there uh, strategically. But it's very important that we actually have non-apostles going out. We'll look at that in a moment, why that, that's so important. But before we uh, get into the next point, I want to start this diaspora. Uh, Bishop Carlos Lopes, one of our trustees, he is one of our Asbury graduates from many, many years ago, and he's now, the last 20-some-odd years, the bishop of the 6th District of Brazil. Now, I have been to the 6th District of Brazil, and he was determined to show me his district. Now, I'm a young Methodist, so to me, a district is a pretty small geographic area. You know, maybe you have several hundred churches in it, whatever. The district that he oversees is a 1,000 miles long. It's 300 miles wide. This is a large chunk. I mean, Brazil only has six districts in the whole of the country, and Brazil is a massively large country. So uh, we flew around, and we met, met people, and, and we met church plants. It was unbelievable, the vibrancy of the Methodist church in Brazil. If you ever can discourage Methodism, go to Brazil. I felt like I had been seeing the world in black and white, and then I got to Brazil, and it all came color. I mean, it was unbelievable. So I said to Bishop Lopes, how did this happen? All these new churches, these we went from vibrancy to vibrancy. He said, well, when I got here 25 years ago, the, the church was moribund and struggling, you know, like how churches do. And uh, they only had two ordination uh, categories, just like the United Methodist does today. They had the deacon and they had the elder. And so these uh, young people came to him and said, we want, to, uh, you want you to appoint us to a church. He said, I don't have a church to point you to. There's no churches open because there were not that many. And he said, but I'll tell you I deal with you. If you go plant a church, I'll point you to it. He said, well, that's an idea. <laughs> so his conference said, uh, you can't do that. These people aren't, they're not designated. They're not elders or deacons. You're just sending them out. 
So he said, well, we have to have a new category. And he created the category of designated missionary. That's what they call it in Brazil. What we would call it, you know, the diaspora. These are people that are being scattered out for the purpose of planting churches. And that is at the heart of the New Testament as part of Asbury's vision to train a thousand church planters because there's so much low-hanging fruit for church planting today. And so every time you hear about churches closing down, think about Bishop Lopes in Brazil and the designated missionary. Now, the second point is what happens. They, they, I call this uh, the versus diaspora 2.0. This is power encounter 2.0. They go down, and this, they, they, we find we, they send uh, Philip down there, and he's one of the seven uh, deacons that's appointed back in Acts 7. We have the dispute, remember, about the feeding of the Grecian widows? Now, this is really important because this is not the apostles. This is the second group that comes down. Now, this is important because the, in Acts, you have the apostles doing miracles. Then here you have deacons doing miracles. Then you're going to have uh, kind of Ananias laying hands on Paul with the Holy Spirit. And then you have unnamed people going to Cyprus and, from Cyprus and Cyrene going to Antioch. Now, one of the themes that you may have someone tell you in your ministry is that the gifts of the Holy Spirit died out with the apostles. This is widely believed in the church. Please resist such false doctrines. It is, I know you're going to hear from me on that. <laughs> there is no basis for this because the, the New Testament is actually showing that the apostolic gifts are, in fact, passed down through the lives of, in this case, the deacons. It's not dying out with the apostles. In fact, um, when they go down, they have this very, very fruitful ministry. And Jesus said, greater works than these shall you do, because I go to, go to the Father. Now, it doesn't mean, when, when it says greater works than these, people often interpret this as greater in power. You know, like Jesus is saying, well, you know, I healed a guy of leprosy, but, oh, when you go out, you'll, like, put a decapitated head back on or something like that. It is not greater in power. It's greater in scope. So what he's saying is if Jesus is in Bethany, he can't be in Bethsaida, right? If Jesus is in Bethsaida, he can't be in Capernaum. So Jesus' ministry, in all of its fullness, was located, was, was hindered by the fact that he could only be one place at one time. When the Holy Spirit comes, the, the gospel is universalized to all the people of God. Therefore, he can be ministering his healing here in Orlando, right? There's nothing that cannot happen here. We don't have to go to Jerusalem or somewhere else to see God work. It can happen wherever God's people are gathered. That's a really crucial point. So the idea that the apostles, it dies out with the apostles, defeats the whole purpose of the the scope of God's ministry being universalized throughout all of, of, of the church. So I do, not, and of course the Wesleyan message in general has never embraced cessationism. It's not part of our tradition. It is true that we've had debates about emotionalism, how much emotionalism to allow in churches, should we be bothered by emotionalism. And generally speaking, this is a, a complicated story, but John Wesley was a little more negative about it than Francis Asbury. Now, Francis Asbury was encountered uh, the camp meetings. If you go back into our, in the Second Great Awakening especially, when you look at what happened in camp, Methodist camp meetings, oh, my goodness, 
It'd make your Church of God people feel embarrassed. A lot of things happened. So Asbury's approach was, because whenever they tried to damp it down, they wouldn't get the conversions. So, that, so Asbury said, you know, let them kind of soar a little bit. Don't worry about it. People may be falling down or barking or whatever. There's a lot of bizarre things happening. But when they come into church, we bring them into more decency and order. So they had kind of a, a special allowance for the Kent meetings that John Wesley wasn't too happy about. But anyway, the point is, any kind of cessationism, in my view, and there are different versions of it, but they're all variations of an error, in my opinion. But we have to obviously be careful about some abuses of all these things. But most churches I know, and especially the Methodist world, their problem is not over-enthusiastic. <laughs> all right? So it's a problem, sure, it's a concern, but it's probably not a big concern. Um, you know, I never fit one, one lady in a church, um, and I was growing up in a church in Atlanta, and this woman in the back at a service, and this is, you know, a Sunday night service, but she said, hallelujah. She jumped, shout out, hallelujah. And one of the ushers came and literally escorted her out. <laughs> I thought, well, there went the revival at the back door. It, it almost broke free. <laughs> so I don't think you'd do that. But anyway, so there's this, uh, there's this amazing blessing that happens. And so the apostles, uh, when, when, when Philip goes down, Notice that the, the text purposely compares Simon the sorcerer with, the, with uh, Philip. I mean, Philip, Simon the sorcerer is a man of great power. People are amazed at him. Uh, people are, uh, you know, he's, he's got this, uh, you know, people are giving their attention to him. Everything they say about Simon, they say about Philip, all right? The point being that the power of miracles is not what attests to the gospel, all right? It's one thing that we see, but the real point is that Philip preaches Jesus Christ. Simon preaches himself. That is the dividing point, the ultimate dividing point in terms of the gospel. So here he is. He preaches the gospel. Uh, Simon himself is, is saved. And then the really interesting thing that happens in this text is their revival it breaks out, and they accept the word of God in verse 14. We'll see later when I come back here next time that, you know, Philip is called away from the revival, interesting, to go to a desert road, which is interesting itself. But what is so interesting is the Holy Spirit does not fall on them the way we've seen already in Acts 2 and Acts 4. So there was no spontaneous falling down of the Holy Spirit, then speaking in tongues, all kinds of things you might expect. Instead, basically, uh, Philip uh, calls up, you know, Jerusalem, hey, uh, we got a revival down here. Really? Yeah, I preach the gospel, and, uh, and they're coming to Christ. The Samaritans? Yeah, the Samaritans. They're coming to the gospel. And I think you got to get down here. So, uh, you know, Peter's back there like, hey, John, the Samaritans read the gospel. We better go down and check it out. Okay, there's all this that goes on between uh, Samaria and, and, and Jerusalem. And finally, they send, verse uh, 14b, they sent Peter and John down to them to pray for them. Now, this is the important part of this. This shows that we're seeing a different side to how Acts unfolds reception of the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, the Holy Spirit kind of just comes. Like, you know, you don't control it. And, it's, and then we'll see next time, there's a very important theological point behind all of this. You know, on the one hand, 
you want to see that God is free to move and act. And if he wants to send his spirit right down now, and that's my sermon can stop right now. It's quite all right. We let God do his work. But you also find the church invited into the process. Okay? So you actually see the church from the earliest days develop two liturgies for what happens when someone comes to faith in Christ. The first to be very familiar with, which is water baptism. So these people in Samaria, they are, receive water baptism, and they become they're brought into the church. That's like an entrance to the church. When Peter and John come down, we're told they lay hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So they are now, in the verse 7, Peter laid, placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't actually mention all that happened. But it was pretty dramatic because Simon wanted to buy it, whatever it was. He was pretty amazed by the, the uh, reaction to this. So you actually see two liter- early liturgies develop. That is the, what I call the first half of the gospel, second half of the gospel, the uh, water baptism to the entrance into the faith, justification, laying on of hands, receiving the Spirit. For the second half of the gospel, sanctification, and your purification and receiving your gifts, all those things that happen to the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know the story. The church is almost exclusively focused only on the first part. So it's very common. I mean, I know the Quakers and the Salvation Army, a few others don't baptize it. Most of the church globally believes in water baptism. We may argue about sprinkling, pouring, dunking, all that, but we believe in it. And so the, the idea of water baptism is at the foundation of the church. But when you look at actually how much of pastoral ministry involves laying hands on him to receive the Holy Spirit, it's very, very few. I mean, of course, certain denominations do this, but it's actually in our tradition, in the Methodist tradition. It's a part of our tradition. And if you've not read Larry Wood's uh, recent book on this, he points this out very, very profoundly in the, in, the, in the church. So I bring this up because I think that in many ways our tradition has struggled for years on the tension between what I call a crisis versus process. Crisis means you're in a service or some kind of event or you, you get convicted by the Spirit or you have trouble in your life and you come down to the altar and you have an experience with God. Now, that's a great, beautiful thing. We, we like that. We want that. But there's also process of sanctification where God does things in and through your life. So here at Asbury, for example, we have people who teach counseling classes. Okay, what's the, what is the relationship between a solving a problem at the altar and going through counseling? You see, both of these work together. You need to have, everyone needs to have experience with God that are markers in your life where you say, on that day, God moved my life and something dramatic happened that helped me to get to a new place. I have a lot of these markers in my life where I look back and say, you know, when I really needed it, God did this and this and this. But there's also times where you need to work through process in your life. Uh, we take a lot of credit with Moses before the burning bush. We almost uh, glorify those kind of experiences. But we don't forget the fact, we often forget the fact that Moses spent 40 years in the deserts of Midian being prepared to lead God's people. So you have the burning bush and you have 40 years in Midian in the deserts. You have Paul on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. We all talk about the Damascus Road experience. We all long for that. We many have had that kind of crisis experience where the God appears to us or we have a dramatic conversion. But then what happened to Paul? He spent three years in Arabia 
according to the book of Galatians, preparing for his ministry. Three years. I think in some ways we often will confuse the road to Damascus with the, the desert of Arabia or the burning bush with the deserts of Sinai. And I think God is showing us here that we need both uh, emotional events or where God comes into our lives that are very powerful like that. He also needs process. You may need to be prayed for for a particular problem in your life, but you may need to go to counseling to wonder why do you have this thing triggered in your life. And that's a good service that counselors provide for the church, and we should not be shy of that at all. When I first came into the ministry, I was surprised that my church told me that they had a revival every third week of July every year. I said, I mean, you have a, you have a revival every third week in July? How is that possible? What they meant was they planned services every third week in July, and they hoped a revival would happen. And oftentimes it did not, but they, at least they planned on it. But the point is they positioned themselves to receive God's Word, and God did things, that we had camp meetings every year, etc. But at the end of the day, you have to be trusting God for this uh, process. So I want to commend this text to you. I think it's an important one. Our daughter, Bethany, uh, as you know, I've told you before, works in Tanzania for 10 years now. And, you know, it's a slow, slow process. Uh, her life, because she has to grow all of her own food where she is, uh, her life is spent mostly in farms, and, you know, and working in farms with people. And so she uses the farming, of course, as opportunities to share the gospel. But it's long-haul work. You know, it's, it's a lot of relational work over time. It doesn't, you can't just expect the Holy Spirit to fall down like that and solve all the problems that have come up in these villages for centuries. It takes long-term commitment. And I think the New Testament is showing us the relationship between, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit's spontaneous revival work, other the church's careful work of following up, Sending Peter and John down, eventually Philip is taken away, actually. They follow up, and they nurture this movement. That is a theme all throughout the book of Acts. And I hope that in your ministries that you always um, keep these together. We need, for example, altar calls. We also need banded discipleship, where you're banded together in bands. I was at Realmore one year, I think a couple years ago, and I preached a message that lent itself to addressing the question, of pornography. Pornography is a problem. Uh, digital images is a problem in our society in general, but it, our students are, no, uh, are not free from this problem. So I said to them, it was a Thursday chapel, and I said to the, to the group, I said, I'm not going to have an altar call because it's too easy. Of course you feel, you feel the conviction right now because I'm preaching about it. I said, but I'm going to have the altar call for this service at 7 o'clock Monday morning in the, in the little loose chapel next door. Gives you a whole weekend to think about it. And there's many friends that are not in chapel today because they're on the Internet, that they should be here. So you can share this with your friends. And I said, and I, so I, I just, I've never had an altar call. I'm not sure if they even allow this in the Church of God, an altar call that's delayed by three days. But I said, I'm going to have an altar call on Monday morning at 7 o'clock. Because I want you to go through a process of thinking. So what happened was I showed up, and I told my wife, just to be honest with you, because my faith sometimes falters on these things. I said to my wife, I said, well, I'm going to go over there and pray alone in, in the chapel this morning because I thought, would anybody show up? You know, 
because it's been days since we had the sermon on it. I got there to the, to the chapel, and it was packed with students, mostly men, mostly men who struggle with this. Not all men, but mostly men. And so we prayed for them, and out of that arose what is uh, called, I don't know if you have it down here, but we have it in Wilmore, Band of Brothers. And it's been a accountability band that's specifically designed to help people. And it started out with pornography, but now it's gone into gaming. We have people with gaming addictions that are addicted to gaming. Uh, we've had women with issues of self-image, th things like that. So they have now groups to help people talk through these things. That's process. That's good, solid, sanctified process. That's why Wesley asked the question, how is it with your soul? And the bands and the class meetings that they set up to teach and the band, bands to do accountability. So this text, I believe, is the start to lead us in that direction, that we need uh, the work of the Holy Spirit that only He can do. We also need the instrument of the church who literally lays hands on you, but also literally takes their hands out to you, to hold you, to grip you, to carry you, to lead you, and to be a part of your sanctification. Thanks be to God. Amen.